Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upsound, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upsound it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio. I was going to say, it's no longer Gould Evans. It is no longer Multi Studio. Yes, we've rebranded officially to Multi Studio. So, planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And then we've got Chuck here. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, You did not move, you rebranded. Yeah, it's literally a rebrand name change. I've gotten some questions about like, did you merge with somebody else? I'm like, no, it's like, it's literally the same, you know, we're all the same, just, just a rebrand. So (laughs) when you told me that they were going, they were going for a name change and all this, I thought, well, I I would call the place Abby Kinney and Associates, but (laughs) that was me. But uh, nobody wants to associate with me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember Back in uh, when I was in grad school and I wound up starting my own consulting firm, it was very standard practice to, you know, have Marone and Associates, you know, like that was you put the like important person. And I called my, um, I called my firm Community Growth Institute. And I remember people asking me like, that's such a weird name. Like, what is it? And I'm like, well, it's, it's not about me. You know, it's about this like larger idea. So it was kind of cool when multi-studio came in across my desk and I looked at the website and I'm like, yeah, this is about a bigger idea, uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I I feel like the old name, it's more structured like a law firm or like kind of an old school architectural practice where, you know, now it's, it's an ESOP. So it's employee owned and the, the original founders are not, you know, they're retired and have been retired and so it was time to kind of transition from the older name that reflected kind of a different time to something that reflects, I think, more of a multidisciplinary practice that isn't just about architecture. Well, very exciting. Congratulations to you and all the employee owners at Multi Studio. Thank you very much. Very, very exciting. <laughs> yeah, big change. It's like getting a new job, but I go to the same place and and work with the yeah. same people. So that's <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, do you uh, do you take Uber there? <laughs> that's an amazing segue. Thank you. No, I'm... <laughs> I don't take Uber to work. <laughs> that actually would be probably more expensive than just having my car. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We are covering an article that was published in Slate and written by Henry Grabar who we have actually, we've covered a few articles of his over the past couple of years. Yeah, I recognize the name. Um, so this article is called The Decade of Cheap Rides is Over. And of course, we are talking about Uber, which is a company that has been providing cheap and convenient rides for the last decade and has been knocking out transportation alternatives like Zipcar and taxis and even public transit. So according to the article, Uber is notorious for burning through cash. The company has lost more than $30 billion since it became public in 2019, amounting to an enormous investor-fueled subsidy of America's ride-hailing habit. In a memo released earlier this month, Uber CEO called the past decade an unprecedented bull run, 
saying this next period will be different and will require a different approach. This is a response to what is being called a seismic shift in investor sentiment. Uber will now be focusing on profitability, announcing a new approach to hiring. I'm trying and over, not to laugh. I know. I'm You're looking like, at you <laughs> laughing. I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> so, so let me just try to get through this. Yeah. <laughs> so they're announcing a new approach to hiring and overhead expenses. They will also be shifting their platform to bring consumers in on either mobility or delivery and promoting membership programs. The new approach is might also mean that ride sharing gets much more expensive. In fact, prices have risen already between 45 to 92% over the past two years at both Uber and Lyft. And more recently, surcharges have been added to account for high gas prices. Economists are calling this the end of the era of free money as interest rates rise, an era that the article attributes to the rise of Uber in the first place as it burned through investor cash in order to knock out competition and corner the market. The question is now whether Uber's adaptations will translate to a change in consumer behavior. Is on-demand rides such a good product that people are willing to pay more for it, or does this mark the beginning of the end for Uber? (laughs) So, yeah, I I could tell that you had many things that were going on in your head as I was uh, going through this. Do you think that this is really kind of going to be a completely different economy moving forward? It's it's no longer this bull run. (laughs) Uh, well, I asked if we could do this article this week, and I, I want to talk about Uber because, you know, Uber itself, Lyft, Rideshare is really a big part of uh, kind of the urban revolution, right? And and the change in the way we look at cities and what have you. But it's always rested on this just bizarre foundation of, uh, you know, free money. And, and when we say free money, people think that you know, you mean like handing out money, just giving out money and you're like, oh, who gets free money? And I, I'm telling you, that's exactly what we've been doing. I, I think people people who have normal jobs where you go and you get paid a wage or a salary and they come home and then they, uh, you know, make their mortgage payment and buy their car, you think that like the world works that way. And the reality is, is like the financial world does not work that way. People were literally given money for nothing. They were just handed huge truckloads of money and allowed to do insane things with them under the guise or the hope or or, or the wish or the dream or the, the projection that that would ultimately make sense. And I think I used this analogy last week. If not here, I use it somewhere else and I'll, I'll, I'll use it again now. We have this you know world of physics that's Newtonian. We study this in high school. My daughter is taking physics right now. And you learn how like levers and pulleys work and how a falling object accelerates at 9.8 meters per second squared and, and, and how, you know, momentum uh, is, is a function of velocity and mass. So you, you learn these things and they, they all make sense and they all work until you get to a very large body where you have gravitational effects that warp all this stuff, or when you get to a very small body at the quantum level where all this Newtonian physics breaks down and doesn't make any sense. 
From a financial standpoint, you and I live in a Newtonian world. We can't borrow money without paying it back. We, we have to cash flow our lives. We have to, you know, as this article said, quote unquote, make a profit <laughs> in our lives. Like we can't run at continual perpetual deficits. But the economy we've had really since 2008, and I think you could make an argument that it's since 1998, uh, the uh, 19, you know, the late 1990s, and the collapse of long-term capital management, the uh, the run-up of the dot-com bubble, and all that. We have had an economic system for my entire adult life that has warped gravity of finance said from a government standpoint, like deficits don't matter, said from a private sector standpoint that you don't need to make a profit or even have a profitable business model. We'll just let things go for a couple of decades and figure it out. And what we see in a company like Uber is that uh, this insanity of the market has been subsidizing your ride for a long time. And we're all very comfortable with that, right? We're all very happy with that because I I like Uber. It allows me to do all these things I want to do. For urbanists, it's like it allows me to live in a city car free. And that's very true. And do you also realize that the same market that is subsidizing your ride in Uber and distorting that market is also distorting the market for people making cars and buying cars and building highways and building strip malls and building McDonald's and building uh, suburban houses and building big box stores. And all of that stuff also has been in this fantasy land bizarro market. That, that warped gravity that was in like this non-Newtonian physics kind of financial realm and that none of it makes a damn bit of sense, including, by the way, uh, all of the crappy uh, subsidized development out on the edge that I've spent the last two decades trying to fight against. It's amazing to me how big Uber is um, and them coming out and basically saying that they have an unprofitable business model. I mean, they, in the, in the report, it literally says, or in the memo rather that the CEO put out, it says, we have to make sure our unit economics work before we go big, <laughs> which is really interesting because it, right? they, yeah, if they operate in 72 <laughs> countries and more than 10,000 cities and have had, a, they cited 100 million active user or 118 million active users over the past month. So if this isn't scale, I don't really know what is. And if it's not profitable at the current scale, then, you know, do you get to a certain scale and then it becomes profitable? Or is it just a business model that probably shouldn't have existed in the first place? It's And, and they also said, we are serving multi-trillion dollar markets, but market size is irrelevant and it doesn't translate to profit. It's it's just amazing to me that a profit that a company could get this big basically fueled by quote unquote cheap money. One of the things that I don't quite understand is from the investor's point of view, how do you justify the promise of burning that amount of money and feel that you're going to get paid back at some point in the future. I mean, it just seems if they're scaling up that much and it's still not profitable, regardless of the economic shifts we're experiencing now, if that hadn't happened, how long would, would they be allowing this thing to burn money? That is a fantastic question. And I'm going to try to answer it without talking about uh, cryptocurrency, okay? Oh, here um, we go. No, I'm not going <laughs> I'm to. Kidding. But I think I, I put it out there so people can anchor on it in their mind and draw their own parallels. 
let's look at the successful model of this. And I'm saying, quote unquote, successful uh, in a financial sense, which would be Amazon.com. For years, Amazon lost ridiculous sums of money, lost insane sums of money. Um, every year, they would publish these multi-billion dollar losses. And you know, the, the, the argument was, uh, we are scaling. We are getting to a point where, as a company, um, we are so dominant within the marketplace that we can make up for these losses by A, efficiency of scale, and B, the ability to price uncompetitively. In other words, i.e. a monopoly pricing right. capacity. Which is what Uber has done. Yeah, yes. So the idea was under Amazon, uh, if you were an investor in Amazon, you were betting on two things. And I'll say this as, as non-financial as possible. You were betting, first of all, that other people would buy into this and that your share price would go up. In other words, you would make return on this investment because Amazon could just get really, really big and attract a lot more money so that you could get your investment out and then some before the lack of profitability became an issue. Secondarily, if everything went right, you were going to end up with a company that was so dominant that had no other competitors really, and was able to price at monopoly levels. In other words, they were able to charge whatever they wanted to for whatever they sold and not have it affect their, uh, their revenue. And therefore you could, um, you know, make money ultimately if you destroyed all of the competitors. And that essentially worked with Amazon. I mean, that, that essentially is where Amazon is at. I can't remember the percentage of transactions that, that now happen on Amazon uh, in a retail sense, but it's, it's massive. I, I, I've written a number of books. You can't sell a book if it's not on Amazon. People get mad at us like, why is your book on Amazon? And I'm like, because that is where 95% of all books are sold. And if we don't sell our book on Amazon, no one will read our ideas. Uber is trying to be, and really every tech company is trying to be, uh, the Amazon of their field. They're trying to have so much dominance that they become the market player, the market maker, and their lack of profitability doesn't matter. Because now you're the monopoly player and you can just raise your prices whatever they want. Uber will never get to that. And so Uber really is not only worth a tiny fraction of what they're actually you know, selling for, what their share price actually suggests, they might be worth nothing. They might be like have a negative net worth because they have a lot of debt. They have a lot of uh, creditors. Their business model relies largely on individuals losing money over the long term and mining their own capacity and net worth in order to generate some cash flow out of their car and out of their spare time. To me, that's a, that's a fool's gamble you're making. Yeah, which is another type of subsidy as well, because if they were charging the true cost of the depreciation of their vehicle, that would, you know, consumers ideally would be paying for that. Right. And in a, in a marketplace, is there a market for rideshare? Yes. Is it as big as what it is now? Probably not. Can it work with the debt overhang that Uber and Lyft have? No, because Uber and Lyft were designed to be financial products, not real world things. They were, de they were designed to generate financial returns first 
and then be a successful company second. And that was actually the order they were building this out in. And, you know, when you were reading your original monologue, when you were going through your original uh, thing that you said, the, the bizarre statements of like, well, we need to be profitable before we scale. That not that such a quaint idea? That has been the anathema of every part of our economy for the last two decades, right? It was scale first and then figure out how to become profitable. I'll bring up cryptocurrency just real quickly. The idea of cryptocurrency has been get, you know, scale up, get really huge, get a whole bunch of appreciation, and then we'll figure out a use case for it. And I think you, I think you see cryptocurrency following the same route, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely think there's a demand for ride sharing, a really strong demand. I actually think part of the root cause here is that the quote unquote supply uh, drivers are actually in, uh, there's a shortage right now. There's a shortage of people who are driving for Uber and that, you know, quote unquote supply that they offer is not catching up with this rebounded demand from 2020. And I feel like that that must be part of what's translating to this shrinking revenue because Uber cannot benefit from demand if they don't have drivers. Um, and, you know, people with cars who are willing to use their cars to drive people around places. Um, and now that the financial dynamics have changed and and, you know, investors are, I guess, changing the way that they, they look at this, um, the, the company needs real profitability. Now, I, I actually wonder whether or not pe most people will be willing to pay double compared to what they were paying before. I actually went into my Uber account and looked at the rides that I'm surprised how long I've been riding with Uber, <laughs> but I, you know, it's been, it's been a long time, like six years maybe. And I used to pay like $9 to get Nothing. across Insane, the right. metro. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. really amazing. And and yeah. now I was just thinking, I, I actually pulled up from my house to my work, which is, you know, maybe 10 minutes away. And, and it was like $40. And so there's no way that that is a feasible approach. But there's also other options. And, you know, particularly where I am, public transit is free. Um, all the buses are free. Uh, there's, there's electric bikes that you can just rent off the street. There's, I've actually used scooters in lieu of Uber due to costs. Um, so there are other options. And I do wonder if, at what point do, is it so expensive that people just choose other options that are available to them? Um, and is Uber going to be able to survive through that? Maybe taxis will just come back. Well, let me, let me state it in a different way. I think that what we are going to find is that Uber becomes an elite activity. It becomes something that you either do very rarely or something that you do as, you know, only people who are very affluent do regularly. And let me just say what that is like. That is like what taxis used to be. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I realize that if you live in New York, you know, the idea of stepping out and holding up your hand and getting on a taxi is a very like normal thing to do. In most of the country, it is not. In most of the country, you know, getting a taxi was something that you would 
it was a, a higher end thing that you would do. It was something that you paid a, a premium for. Uber changed that and Uber made it so that you could use a taxi anytime you wanted to. And it was relatively cheap. And we kind of came to, we, we took a lot of things that were upper class things. And I know, I know that sounds bizarre because no one really thinks about Ryan taxi as being like an upper class thing. But when I was, I mean, I'm 48 years old. When I was a little kid, riding a taxi was something that wealthy people did. If you if you could walk, if you could get there some other way, if you could hitch a ride, that's what you did. And so the question becomes, can Uber survive in its current form as an elite activity? And I think the answer to that is no. I think, you know, the the, the answer to that is is no. And Okay, then the question becomes, what does that do for our vision of cities? What does that do for our vision of, you know, the 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 city of the future where people didn't own their own cars and, and you know, all you had to do was just call up and the electric, automated electric car would show up at your door and whisk you Jetsons-like to wherever you wanted to go. I think what we recognize is that that was a fantasy based on a, 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 an unreal financial distortion. And if we're now forced to deal with that reality, it's it's going to change that a lot. Yeah. If the prices go up to what it used to cost to hail a cab, then, you know, we basically are somewhat back at square one, but with a more convenient mechanism for actually ordering the ride. I mean, that that is a convenient piece that I think is a benefit of Uber. And uh, one of the things that is not good is that it's contract employees rather than having like a union or people who are employed by a company. Um, so that has its issues. But, you know, that if, if we're kind of circling back to what was there before, but just with an app on your phone, um, you know, there's some benefits to that. I, I wonder if they will be able to adapt and survive that kind of change because it has been it has been a service that has been kind of so commonplace that it's like people just expect to be able to get an Uber and now you can't find an Uber most of the time. I mean, it's, there's just not enough people doing it. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens next and maybe it just becomes the core market is affluent city residents. Well, let, let's back up and and recognize too that, you know, you used to buy your uh, nails and, and and hammer and spray paint from a local hardware store, and the prices were a lot higher than Home Depot, and now we have Home Depot, so you don't have all those other things, right? We wiped those out. It's the same effect as Uber wiping out the local taxis. And, and that's not to say that the local taxis were always awesome. They didn't innovate fast enough. They didn't do the things they needed to do. They, they were, in a sense, antiques in the system and ripe for you know, a, a competitive tumult, like being shoved off to the side. Um, but you know, maybe not at the scale and maybe not at the pace that we did this. Where you get your books. Is, is buying a book going to be an elite activity now? You know, a hard copy book if you can't, uh, you know, we wiped out every local bookstore. Uh, it, it, you see this same effect repeated over and over and over. We, we lament how we can't find small enough small-scale developers. Why can't we find enough small-scale developers? Because it's really, really hard in this marketplace to be competitive and, and be able to compete with the huge 
mega uh, development companies, you know, who would basically buy up every foreman, every contractor, every plumber, everything in the market. And, and again, distort the market in crazy ways. Does that mean people don't need homes now? No, absolutely not. Does it mean that people don't need rides? No, they absolutely do. It's just that it's going to be in a marketplace that is priced more closely to reality. And that will change behaviors a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think we'll leave it there. Um, before, but before we end today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been reading, watching, anything we've been up to these days. Uh, so Chuck, I'll throw it to you. So I didn't get any hate last week about my book recommendation, which I was, I'm grateful for. There's a very mature <laughs> audience yes. that allows us to entertain many points of view. Um, I started this past week uh, a book called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber. I've read stuff by him before and always found it to be very interesting. Um, this book is no different. Uh, really looking at the history of societies uh, through a non- non-Western, non-European lens. So, you know, we, we have this narrative of human history as nasty, brutish, and short, uh, people going from hunter-gatherers to agriculture to cities uh, to Western dominance because of, you know, uh, all these factors that, that led to innovation and industrialization. This is giving alternate narratives to that, and it's very fascinating um, to think of history and to think of um, humanity in this way. We often look at where we're at today as the kind of logical and in some ways unstoppable progression of certain forces. And what Graeber likes to point out and, and has in his other books as well is that this is not predestined to be this way. There are other options, there are other models, and we can think about these things differently. And I, I, I'm not sure, I mean, if, 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 you're, if it's like a, do you buy this or not? I, I really don't think it's the kind of book you approach that way. I think it's the kind of book that you say, wow, these are, these are very interesting ideas that are worthy of considering and worthy of um, you know, pondering their implications. So I'm enjoying it so far. I'm about two thirds done. Well, that's fascinating. I have just been, I've been like in tunnel vision this week, just working and like getting some stuff done. And now it's Friday as we're recording this, we're about to start the holiday weekend. And I am going to get my kayaks out for the first time this year. And I was going to ask if you were going to bike. <laughs> yes, I'll probably bike. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. It's been raining all week, so I don't know if I'm going to get, go on the trails, but I'll definitely bike around the city. I definitely want to get my boat out because not my boat, my your kayak. Makes me call it your boat. Yeah, yeah. Bust out another thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of my plan. I I want to. I need to go get my fishing license and everything, and it should be nice enough to get out. So I'm hopefully going to find somebody to help me get all the spiders out of the boat before I get in it. Um, maybe a neighbor or my husband or somebody. It's not going to be me. No um, vacuuming spiders? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you could you can do that, Abby. Yeah, you, you've I'll got, use the vacuum. I just hey. need, I have intense arachnophobia. I can't even handle it. I watched you walk through a World War One trench with uh, <laughs> bombs going off around you, and and you were very brave, 
very courageous, no fear. You can handle the spiders. You can do it. I'm not going to lie. I did take off the VR glasses no, for you like did? a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, you know, the hardcore history <laughs> is uh, definitely hardcore, very intense. So, yeah. Uh, um, I think it, I'm more afraid of spiders. <laughs> to be use honest. the shop vac. Like it'll, it'll work out. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to ask the urbanist geek, like mega question. Can you bike your kayak to the place you want to go? In other words, do you have like a bike trailer? That like, to me, that would be like the ultimate, like I've got a trailer for my bike because they sell those, you know, like you can actually get that. I've seen people with these was like, I've never done that. Okay. Um, so. That it would be really cool. It's yeah. very hilly in Kansas City. Mm. So um, this isn't exactly a flat place. So, so you might have to do the electric bike. Yeah. If I had an electric bike, maybe I should mm. get an electric bike and um, then I can tote my, my kayak around on it. Yes. That's not a I'm, bad idea. I'm encouraging you now. It, hmm. That is funny because Kansas City does. I, I've been biking this summer. And I've got a, a good friend, one of my board members actually on Strava that, uh, is that how you say that? Strava? S-T-R-A-V-A? I think so. Strava. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And so I've been sharing my pathetic bike rides with him. He will <laughs> bike like 30 miles for just like a warm up thing. And I'm like, yeah, I went seven miles. Uh, yeah. I'm working my way up. But anyway, um, he will go and it's like, he'll have like a thousand feet of elevation change in his like Thursday afternoon bike ride. And I will bike... <laughs> It'll have like, it's like five 65, feet. yeah, like 65 <laughs> feet of elevation change because Minnesota is just very, very flat. I kind of envy that. I mean, it's it's not easy. People think Kansas City is flat because the word Kansas is in it and it's anything mm-hmm. but flat. So, yeah, I and I use a mountain bike to get around when I bike because that's the only bike I have. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's another consideration because there's a little bit of weight to deal with. So, well, yeah. welcome to uh, welcome to summer, and I hope. Um, Thank you. I hope I'm you glad have a fun to be here. Time kayaking. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's it's uh, going to be over 70 degrees today, which is like wow, yay, summer. So. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped about it. So, well, you enjoy your holiday weekend. <laughs> thank you. Um, Likewise. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye bye. Let me show you what I-